The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Dr. Seuss. There are thousands upon thousands of amazing, helpful books out there. My goal is to read them and share how we can implement the wisdom to improve our lives, the lives of the animals, and even help save the world. Welcome to Zoo Notable, taking wisdom from self-improvement, conservation, and animal-related books, and using them to help us become the best versions of ourselves. Whether you are an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and life, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. All right. Welcome everyone to another Zoo Notable. I'm PJ with Zoo Fit, and today I have a really special guest. I have one of my very first writing partners I ever had, and I moved to Whidbey. I was looking for a writing community. A month after I moved, they closed my writing community. So <laughs> what do I do? I, I form my own <laughs> I help with some help of some, uh, some new friends. And, and our guest today was one of the first folks to, to join me in my writing venture. So she's one of the first people to have ever heard the books that I'm writing or the stories I'm telling. And I was one of the first fortunate ones to read one of the, to read the first parts of her book that she's written. You were. <laughs> Jan Wright. She's written a, a memoir about her time as a teacher called Dear Mrs. Wright. It's a teacher's memoir inspired by students' letters. Jan, welcome. So glad to have you. Long time no see. Thank you, Patty. It's good to see you. Yes. <clears throat> I remember that summer when it was just the two of us. <laughs> Again, I absolutely loved reading your book and reading the passages that again, I remember going, oh, I remember her working on this. Yes. It's so fantastic to see the work and complete and how good it feels to have a book that you- It does. And and I have so many people to thank for uh, helping me along the way. Back then when you and I were just starting out with these things, it was invaluable to have someone to write with and talk about uh, the book which wasn't a book then. <laughs> it was just a, just a couple of stories. But wow. It's become a great, it's become a great story. This is interesting. I, I was just talking to someone else and she was struggling with like, I want to share this, but not with, not with just anybody. And I don't have anyone to share this, this work with. And I said, what you need is a critique group. What you need is somebody, a supportive group that kind of knows your your journey at least as as a writer and can give you the right push but also the right encouragement so it's not just fluff oh this is great this is wonderful but also not like what is this drivel and 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 throwing it in the trash so again that right push but the right with the right encouragement and so um, absolutely right i have had a lot of writers along the way help me and encourage me and keep me going and they encouraged me and they helped me and it turned out okay. It turned out more than okay. It turned out really <laughs> good. <laughs> so um, so let's get into this. Again, dear Mrs. Wright, um, this is, a, as, you, as it says, it's a memoir about your job as a teacher. Now, Jan, many people who are writing their books right now, maybe have been teachers in the 90s or, two, or the early 2000s. But now, when did you become a teacher? Well, the book starts in 
one actually. Um, I was in Florida and I got my first job in the middle of the school year. Actually, it was February 11th. And I stepped into a position that was pretty stressful, but I didn't know it. I was just anxious to get a job. And so I, I stepped into a sixth grade with 43 students. Oh my the teacher had been fired and they'd had substitutes for about two weeks and the substitutes wouldn't even stay because the class was so challenging. <laughs> but I was so excited to be there. It was just the best, best experience, but really challenging to start with. And I had them for four months and they wore me out, but I loved them. <laughs> so that was in 1971, 72. That was one year after they had integrated the schools in the Panhandle area of Florida. So it was a time when I had to document how many black students, how many white students, and who rode the bus. This is again the time of right after uh, desegregation in the in the U.S., which is just astounding to be a part of that kind of history. It was really really fascinating to to read your take on this. And again, as a new teacher, wow, 43 students, that's your yeah. first teaching job. That's a, that would be kind of stressful. To, that's a challenge. And as we say with my coaching program, we're like, you know, bring it on. Let's, let's do this. And, and that's what you did. Uh, so, so you were a teacher in the early seventies. I taught for one, that four months in Florida. Then my husband, who was in the Navy, uh, got transferred to Virginia. So I did one full year there. And the book is about that the first four months and then the one full year. And then the book jumps ahead to the end of my career. I was planning on writing about the whole thing. <laughs> I discovered as I began to write that I had to tell the stories more deeply than I thought. I wanted, I wanted my readers to get to know my students. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to get to really feel what it was like to, to be with those kids and to be a teacher. And so the stories became more detailed. It's my memory of that many years ago. <laughs> At first, it was just like kind of an outline. And then the more I worked on a chapter, the more I would remember. I'd go to sleep, I'd wake up in the morning, and I'd, I remember that part, and I'd add it to the story. So it, it is a process when you start to write from memory from so far back. So I, I do like this kind of juxtaposition and there's something that I kept going back to like, wow, look at the difference when you talk about the beginning of your career, your first full year as a, as a teacher and your, and your very first teaching experience mm -hmm. versus when uh, your last couple years or uh, yeah, your last couple years. And then when you moved on to becoming a, um, a new teacher advisor. So we'll get to that in just one moment, but there was just such this like, juxtaposition, like there's a confidence that you exuded um, in that second half of the book. I, fair, fair enough, you're brand new at teaching, but wasn't there when you, when you first started. Um, yeah. But beyond that, like what, what was the difference for you? Was it like the way that schools ran? Was there, again, just the, the size of the classes or was there a different mentality around the two eras of, of your the teaching that you talk about in the book? Um, every school and every district is different. And the uh, climate in the school where you work is very different. My last school, I was kind of shocked <laughs> of the climate when I first got there because I had spent 10 years teaching in Placerville, California, 
where it was very collaborative. I learned so much from those teachers. I really have to write a book about those middle years. <laughs> um, I, I learned how to be a really good teacher there. And so I brought those skills with me when I went to uh, my last school, which was in Mountain View at Crittenden mm. Middle School. Um, I walked into a culture that was not very supportive at first. And you see that in my transition years where I, where I have to move from one portable to another. But by the time I finally decided I, I was invited to become a science teacher and I didn't think I could do that, but we figured it out and I could. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I love life science. So that was um, exciting. But to go from having a self-contained classroom where you see these kids wherever 30, 35 kids a day all the time mm -hmm. until you now have every period you see different group of 35 kids. The, the wonderful thing for me was the first two years I taught seventh grade science, I'd had the students in fifth grade. So I knew them, lots of them. But the final year, I struggled to learn their names because all of a sudden I had 180 students that I didn't know their names. And that means I didn't know them individually. Mm -hmm. And that was very difficult. But in science, you can do writing and you can do reading and you can do uh, activities with them in the lab where you get to walk around and you get to talk to them and you get to see them discover things or look through the microscope and you have interaction with the kids a little better in a class like science. So uh, I did see a, I did see a big change in my confidence, but I never ever felt like I had it all. I always felt there was something more to learn and a better way to be a teacher. Yeah, that's actually really, really important, really poignant. Uh, you know, we are never, we never know it all. We always have just a little bit to learn. It's actually a certain animal that scientists now point to as the evidence for why we have a brain. And that is the sea squirt. The sea squirt is this tiny little sea creature. It looks kind of like a sponge, clear type sponge. But it starts its life off as a tadpole looking animal, very, very tiny with the tail mm -hmm. and a very primitive brain. And what happens is that it, again, swimming through the ocean, it's got, it needs a tail to, to move through the ocean, but then it attaches itself onto, onto the ocean floor or some kind of, you know, uh, some kind of surface and it stays there for the rest of its life. So it loses its tail. It doesn't need a tail anymore. It's not moving. But then what else it does is it, it actually absorbs or eats its own brain because they don't need their brain anymore. Because they're because, stuck in one place. Because they're stuck in one place. So scientists are now saying that the reason we have a brain is to keep, is to move. And I think of this on a literal level, again, as a fitness <laughs> consultant, literally we need to keep moving. But on that figurative level too, I feel that again, that's why we have a brain is so that we keep moving forward with, with our goals, with our learning, with progression. That's what makes us human. That's what makes us again, good creatures as a, as I was reading with Cy Montgomery, but again, we kind of keep moving forward and we never know it all. And if we stop learning, we stop using our brain we might as well be sea squirts sitting on the bottom of the ocean floor. The I always learn so much from you, Patty. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so the other thing, again, I, 
you ended as a science teacher and you just kind of answered this already, but like what, what, what was your favorite subject? Was it science or like, what was the most meaningful aspect of teaching, teaching something like science? Cause I think that if I were to be a teacher, I think I'd want it to be science. Myself. I love, I, I love science, science teaching. I didn't get to do much of that in my earlier years, but by the time I was in Placerville and I began to take workshops on how to teach science, they came out with FOSS kits. I don't know if you know what the FOSS kits are, but they no. came with this Lawrence Livermore Hall of Science. And okay. they were like, the one, I, the one I got to work with was the landforms kit. And you had sand and you built this thing and you put the water in it. And, and then I flew across the country and I went, oh, that's like, that's like the Delta I made. <laughs> when I was enthusiastic about a subject, my students got that enthusiasm. And I think that's what makes a good teacher. If you are excited about what you're teaching and you're learning, uh, they will be too. I think the other thing that I always liked doing, and I ended up in the book at the end of the book doing, it was teaching uh, art. Right. Uh, yes. Yeah. I took it to heart that I was told I was to teach about these three artists. So I learned about Picasso and I learned about, you know, I, I, we had, we were in Placerville. So Thomas Kincaid was mm. painting there at that time. And I had a parent in my class or a parent of one of my students who worked for him. And she brought in some of his paintings and showed us what she did on his painting. She put all the lights on his paintings. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so I always liked connecting what we were doing with what was happening around us in the real world. So that was, uh, that was a really neat thing to do. So science and art fit together very well for me. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> I love how you, in, in the book, you have a, you have a, a, an epiphany yourself, uh, not an aha moment with one of the, one of the students who goes, I don't know. And I don't care. Uh-huh. And she wrote, that on a, she wrote that on a test question. Yeah. And I was just incensed at first. <laughs> oh my God. What did she? Th and I went and talked to my son who was visiting and he was helping my husband build cabinets. And I said, look what this girl wrote. And he says, well, maybe she really didn't know why that was important, mom. <laughs> and it just dawned on me. Oh, he's so right. She's right. And I went back to that class and I said, I have to tell you what someone wrote. And I didn't tell who it was, mm -hmm. but she knew who it was. And from that moment on, I brought in everything in real life that I could connect what we were learning about. And, and I told them why they were learning what they were learning, because it was important. I had newspaper articles. I had this, I had that. <laughs> At the end of the year, she said, I I'm so sorry I wrote that because now everything is too important. <laughs> <laughs> But it is for some students, most students, they need to know why they're learning what they're learning. Mm -hmm. For me as a teacher, I loved when there was a discovery moment. I had a moment where I was teaching about eyes and I had the lights in the classroom turned off and I had given every student a mirror. These are seventh graders. And I didn't think it would be any big deal. But I said, look at your eyes, study your eye. And take a good look at it. And then I turned the light on and boom, the, you know, the pupil gets really big. I heard these, oh, whoa, ah, wow. These kids had never seen that happen in their eyes. And so to see a moment like that, where they discover something new about themselves. And like the time we did, I had eggs. I brought eggs in. I love to bring new things. We were studying cells. And a lot of seventh graders had never cracked open an egg. 
And I gave every child, every child an egg, 180 eggs we cracked open and looked at. <laughs> but some, for some, that was the big experience was something they'd never done. They had adults do for them their whole life. Mm-hmm. And even in fifth grade, I found that I could make, I could have students do things brand new that their parents hadn't realized they were old enough and they could do. So that was the exciting thing about children discovering things in my classroom. Yes. <laughs> again, I love those discovery, those aha moments. And again, as you said, I think to be a good teacher, there has to be the enthusiasm, the, the curiosity and the, again, we call it a childlike mind, but I think once again, it's something that we just constantly have just a, a, a curiosity about the world around us and having that enthusiasm, but also again, letting them understand why this is important. So in my, in my own journey um, to where I am right now, I've always held on to this. What's your big, why, why is this important to you? And again, this, we're, we're looking at the internal, not just like, Oh, I'm going to get, I'm going to get healthier or, I'm going to get a raise. Um, those are, those are external motivations. What's inside of you that is going to propel you forward. And I think that really key that, that I don't know, and I don't care actually help propel you to find out what's your big why. And then what's the kids, what's mm-hmm. the students big why for, for learning about the, about this, about the subject and just the world around them. So it was really, really fascinating. I really enjoyed reading about this aha for kids. When, when, when the pandemic started, I went to live with my two sons and my grandson. The four of us lived together and he was in seventh grade and they just stopped having school. He didn't have mm-hmm. learning or anything, but I was a seventh grade teacher and he was a seventh grade student. So you know. <laughs> <laughs> we had a ball together. And so I taught science to my seventh grade grandson. And uh, we were studying about DNA and I, I said, I'd like you to make a model because he would go to his mom's house for a couple of days every week. And he came back and he had taken a game program. I don't know if it, I don't think it was Fortnite, but it was one of those pr- computer programs that he had made a model of a DNA molecule in the game. Program. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> there you go. Combining things. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So grandma got to learn too. <laughs> That's awesome. It was, it was a wonderful time. I, I know there were many challenges about COVID and the pandemic, but for us to be together that uh, closely for a seventh grade boy and a grandma to spend time together, it was wonderful. Again, a, a great way to get some quality time. And again, both of you learning together. Uh, what a really special Special using that as a way to turn um, turn an obstacle, turn something that what I call a parasite into an opportunity. I love these little like turning those into pearls. What I call, what they say, turning these obstacles into uh, gems, something that we can treasure for for years to come. So I'm glad that you had that experience with him. That's, that's I think really that's what you do in teaching too. If um, there are many many challenges in teaching, and I've been I've read some of the feedback or some of the some of the posts by people who are in teachers groups right now, and they are having a very stressful time to be teachers in during the pandemic years. But even back when I was teaching, it was still hard, and you have to find the the positives and to keep going 
to to do the best job you can do, you have to find you know something that you enjoy and something that um, gives you purpose. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Again, the speaking of those challenges, uh, what was probably some of the and you you do talk about some challenges and how you face them, and I loved your your description of of some of these you know some of these encounters, but. What were some of like the biggest challenges that you face as a teacher and how did you overcome them? I think the biggest challenge was I never had enough time to do everything I wanted to do. <laughs> I, I did not like grading. Um, I didn't like that whole system. I never felt really comfortable with until toward the end of my career, I began to use rubrics more. Um, rubrics came in and, and when I finally had some samples of work and I could show them, this is what a 10 looks like. And this is what a five looks like. And this is what a one looks like. Mm-hmm. And if you want to learn, you have to get as close to this 10 as you can. And this is the way you do it. When that came in and that became uh, usable with my students, it took all the pressure off of me because I wasn't judging them. Right. I was taking them from where they were and moving them up the scale. And that was a, a wonderful thing to do. And sometimes it was parents. Oh, <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, you could have 100 parents say, you did a great job. I loved it. And you're, you were great for my kid. But then there's that one who comes and they give you a bad time about something, something little or something, you know, that's challenging them. It's hard not to take that personally because I put so much of myself into my teaching and I know teachers do that. So I would say parents were one of the challenges, but I learned from them usually. I I early on had a principal who taught us that when a parent comes in really upset, don't listen to the exact words, don't respond to the exact words that they're saying, listen to their tone of voice, listen to their Uh, the emotion behind it and figure out why they're so upset. It's often from fear. What are they afraid of? What are, what's bothering them? You know, what's, what's underneath all of that, the verbiage that's coming out. And I had a student one year who was that way. He, He lived in a very challenging home situation. And at the very end of the year, I think he got a C plus in something. And his mother came in with the report card, the last day of school just yelling at me this way and that. And I realized, you know, she just wanted the best for her student, for her, for her child. And I just responded to her emotion rather than to all of her words. And that made me feel much better about dealing with that parent, (laughs) but it was hard to send this child home with, with that kind of uh, disappointment in, in their parent Mm. from their parent. Yeah. Parents are a challenge for people. <laughs> um, a lot of animal trainers can relate. So they, we love working with the, with the student, with the animals, but most of it is actually dealing with the parents of those, of those pets too. So um, it's not just about, yeah, as much as we love the kids, it's not just the kids that we're, we're going to be dealing with. Um, and I love how you're saying it. it's like looking at the emotion, not the words. Let's look, you know, because words are, are usually just what's, what's coming out, what's, what is staying in are the emotions. I, I really do think that's some really sound advice. 
which kind of leads what your students offered some amazing advice for you at the very end of your book. Again, you gave them a hint and you, you came through with their promise that eventually that you turned it into a book. But what were some of the advice that you would give to teachers that are coming in, whether they're brand new or whether they're just looking to improve their, their skills? I would say teach from your own personal strength. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about what you think everybody else wants you to do, but do teach from your own personal strength. Be patient with students. You're not teaching a subject, you're teaching a child, a child. Each individual child learns differently and they perceive what you say and what you do differently. Mm-hmm. I had a mentor at one, one of my early schools who said, what you are for your students is a good model. If you are nothing else, be a good model. And I never quite got that until it was actually later on that year. I had I had a gifted and high achieving fourth grade class that year. And we had a group come in and talk about sexual abuse. And they took the kids out one by one to let them talk to these counselors and gave them the opportunity to choose one adult that if they felt comfortable at school, they could talk with. Hmm. I had a student in my room that was really quiet. Never, I never had any trouble with her, but she didn't respond. and didn't do a whole lot of interaction with me, but she watched me interact with my other students. And this group found out that she was being abused. And they asked her, who would you like to talk to? And they said, I want to, she said, the little girl said, I want to talk to Mrs. Wright. Mm. So I realized from that point on that she may not say anything much in class, but she watches how I interact with everybody else there. So you, a teacher has to be a good model. If you do nothing else, you're a good model. So watch how you treat people. It, treat them with kindness and patience. And that means all of your students, every single one. And know that every child has a gift. Every child has something they do well somewhere in their life. And you, your job is to find it. Yes. And to nurture it. Before we continue with our Zoo Notable, I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. I couldn't do these notables without them. So we'll be right back after these messages. Yeah, everybody learns differently. Does it? Uh, yeah, it isn't how you teach. It's how you how they learn, how they learn how they yes and every everybody's going to be different and that's actually something that i that i learned um, as an animal trainer but then it really came to light when i started training humans is that everybody learns at a much at a much different uh, rate and pace as everyone else and so what works for one animal what works for one person isn't going to work necessarily for for another and uh I remember again, my, one of my favorite students I had as a fitness instructor was, um, was a 76 year old woman who actually started my, started my class. The doctor saying she had borderline dementia. She had symptoms of dementia. And so Mm -hmm. her daughter actually brought her to my class to hopefully get her, get her moving, get her brain moving. So I would ask her to do simple things like a push up against the wall rather than on the, on the ground because she didn't have the strength, but her hips would be all 
piked up or what we would call like a, like a triangle. And I would say, put your, put your butt down and she would pike it up, you know, <laughs> or, and I, and I scratched my head thinking like, well, it's not her. It's not, I mean, it's very easy to say, oh, she's, she can't do this. She's not doing it right. But it wasn't her. It was, she wasn't being able to, she wasn't able to respond to my direction. So I had to rewind and go, okay, what's, how am I going to help her? And eventually we found a way where I was able to straighten her back and then get her, help her into the rower. And then again, moving, moving a little bit more and more, lifting a little bit more and more. And six months later, I remember she was in the rower and, and I thought I had a good two or three minutes before she'd be done. And then about a minute later, she just popped right out of the rower. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> And her entire, <laughs> entire class was like, because she usually needed help to get out of the rower, mm-hmm. but she just got up right out of the rower herself. And she, and she approached me laughing. She goes, uh, the doctor said my dementia symptoms are gone. Oh, wonderful. And so, yeah, so keep it up. I mean, like, no matter what, just keep trying. There's, there's a way to get through and it's going to make the world of difference for mm-hmm. that, you know, for the children and for, for the community too. So there's, there is a way to get through. It's like, it's like the student named Stephen I had in fifth grade and every month we had an oral book report and he wouldn't say a word. He wouldn't. And he didn't read much, but I would help him in the library, try to find a book, try to find a book and try to get him up and to, to at least say something. But he, he wouldn't even stand up until the very last month of fifth grade. And then he then he said a few things. He's the one that I then had again as a seventh grader. And by that time, he was in a special day class for uh, students who needed extra help. But when he turned to eighth grade and I went to eighth grade graduation and I saw his name on the program, I thought, well, he must be you know, handing something off to somebody. <laughs> I didn't know what he was gonna do. He got up and he gave a speech to the graduating class and all the parents there. He gave a speech by the time he was in eighth grade and, I, and he thanked me publicly. That's that stay with it, be patient, and treat them kindly, and they will blossom. Yeah, again, that was a really amazing story, and something I could tell just from reading the book, that was something that just really touched your heart, like, of all the presents, you know, you, the, the statue that, uh, that your student gave you, that you thought was, like, he didn't, he didn't care about me. He gave you a statue on his last day, world's greatest teacher. And yeah, yeah those, those are those little gems that, that like make everything worthwhile. So I'm so glad that you had, you had those. You, you but, just never know. Just be patient. Yes. You never know. So you have this great book. Um, I, again, I think teachers will really appreciate this. If, whether you're a teacher of of little humans, <laughs> whether you're teaching older humans or whether you're teaching animals or, or t- teaching your community. I just have found this book really, really insightful. Again, starting at your, starting on one end of the spectrum you know, in the early seventies and working your way, seeing how, how you can shine through being the best version of yourself for the, for the kids. 
30 years later, <laughs> 30 years later. And, uh, and it was a really, really touching. What is something else? What is something that you would like teachers or, or readers to get from this book? I, I had, I posted a banner on Facebook that announced that my book was finally available. And I had recently had a comment written on there by a man who is not a teacher. He worked in finance, but he's read my book. And I think it brings it to a special meaning for me when he wrote, now I know why society must encourage more people to become teachers. <laughs> what a difference they make. Mm-hmm. And I wow, thought, yes. that's what I wanted my book to teach or to tell. And that is that teaching is complex and it is very important. It is very valuable. Sometimes in today's society, we value wealth in dollars, finance, money, but things like teaching, you don't, re- you, you can't measure that way. Mm-hmm. But, no. but teaching is very, val- it's valuable. It's worthwhile. And I think teachers will find it. T- people who have been teachers, those people I've heard from say, I remember when I did this and I did that. It brings up their own memories and their joy of teaching for new teachers i'm hoping that they'll see some of themselves in the beginning part and, <laughs> and then see the ending and see where you can go and how you can touch the lives of your students so so meaningful and again so well well written well well said thank you jan i have to ask i know we were talking about this a little bit before i hit record but and so do you have plans to continue on? Because yeah, you left you left the the uh, the school Mountain View School in two thousand three to become a new teacher advisor, and then you went on even further. So, are you going to continue? Or are you going to write about your middle years? Or is this is this about all you had in you? <laughs> Actually, I'm in the middle of editing a an anthology for my latest writers group. And I will have four pieces in that. Uh, it's pretty close to getting ready to be published. So that that's something I'm working on now. I'm also starting a t- coffee table book with a friend who's a photographer. And we're writing about some hidden gems at uh, Trinity Lutheran Church. which There are stories about things that we found in little corners of the church and on tiles and things. So I'm going to write the background. She wanted to do the photographs. But as far as teaching goes, I... I do have some more stories to write (laughs) (laughs) and I don't think I'll write about the after years. I think I will write about the middle years because those years really formed who I became as a teacher. Actually, I had one of my students. I didn't very often see what happened with my students after I, after they left my room, they went on to another school or I moved. So very few of those students, I really know what happened Mm -hmm. to, except I have one who happens to be my financial advisor now. Oh, wow. (laughs) His dad was my financial advisor and he was in my class and his sister was also in my class, actually. But as he grew up and became an adult, pretty soon he went into his father's business and now he's my financial advisor. So he wrote to me, I I let him know that I was publishing the book and he said, oh, I want you to sign the book for me. Can can you do that? I said, well, I, they actually are being sent out of Sacramento and, um, but I will eventually go down there and I will do a book signing and I'll let you know. He said, but I said, but you need to know that this book is not about those years when you were in my class yet. I haven't written about that yet. And he said, oh, so you're saving the best for last. (laughs) (laughs) 
I said, well, maybe so. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> so yeah, I know I have to write some more. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. Good to hear that we have other future projects. I look forward to reading more. It was such a delight. We have dear Mrs. Wright, Jan, what a pleasure to have you. Um, Thank you, Pat. Is, is there something that you would like for readers to, to, to do at, like, and when they read, anything that you want them to take away or to, ways to connect with you? In the back of my book, there is a website and there is a, an email address for me. It's jan at dearmrswright.com. And I would love to hear how the book is uh, affecting people. I, <laughs> there are, I hope, pieces where people will laugh and maybe cry, but mostly appreciate what it means to be a teacher and what it means to be a student. Yes, and definitely, folks, if you get your copy, I have a link to grab your own copy in the description down below. One other thing to do, everyone, is if you read this book, please leave a review. Yes. We authors love reviews. Honest <laughs> yes. reviews are, are really preferred. Even if you didn't love, love, love this book, absolutely, let us know. That's the great greatest gift that you can give as a thank you to to any author. But um, great once again. Uh, I'm gonna have to get back up to Whidbey. I miss you guys so much. <laughs> it's you, uh, Patty. You got a lot of energy. You got to get your book written now. <laughs> I, I am. Yes, we're. We're working on it. <laughs> okay, good. Thank you, Patty. Yes. Once again, thanks everyone for joining us. This is uh, this is your notable. Again, keep learning, keep moving, keep moving forward. Make a difference in your life and the world around you. Thanks, Jan, so much. that's all I've got for this wonderful book. Let me know your thoughts. What big idea resonated with you the most? And how can you incorporate that into your life starting today? And share some of your favorite books that you love to see a Zoo Notable on. A gigantic thank you to my patrons, Rochelle, Laura, Sarah, Liz, and Stephanie. Keep working on becoming the best version of yourself today, tomorrow, and forever. For you, your community, the animals, and the planet. Take care and I will see you all next time.